and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 65, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And this show is for you if you've got memories of rushing home from school and button bashing on Sonic the Hedgehog on your Mega Drive or... Maybe you're waiting 20 minutes for a game to load from cassette tape on your Sinclair Spectrum. Yeah, borrowing 10p from your dad so you could play in the chip shop on one of the arcades or, you know, kind of getting some dodgy discs at school and loading them up. Ooh, ex-copy sessions. Yeah, definitely. You speak from experience wherever you can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, if uh, that last one did kind of resonate with you a little bit, I think you're going to enjoy the guest that we've got this week. Now, the way the show works is Ravi and I run through all the headlines, the big stories that have been making the world of retro this week. And then, in the second half, we welcome a very special guest. And this week, it's all about the Amiga demo scene. Oh, yeah. We've got one of the top demo producers. This is Kim Fredrickson a.k.a. Psycho from Bud Brain Productions. And he's kind of telling us all about the European scene, the early demo scene, and just the fun that they had back in the days. Because it was, I mean, you know, you go back to the late 80s, early 90s, it was a massive youth culture, wasn't it, the demo scene? Yeah, and it was these giant parties full of kids watching video nasties, drinking Coke, <laughs> just <laughs> causing trouble, Drinking really. more than Coke from the videos I've seen, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of underage boozing went on at those parties, by oh, the looks definitely. of it. Oh, definitely. Well, there is actually some, like, videos, if you look on YouTube, and um, I put a few of these in our show notes, if I can find the links, um, of, like, you know, people walking around with VHS camcorders and filming a lot of these demo parties all around Europe in the early 90s. And it just looks like anarchy. They look wild. Yeah, it looks absolutely mad. You know, kids also used to sleep underneath their desks with the big computers on top. And, oh, it's fantastic. And he also worked in a retail shop, so he can give us both angles. Yeah, what it used to be like trying to sell the computers as well as, like, have fun with them. So uh, if you've got any memories of the demo scene, you're going to love this week's guest. Kim Fredrickson, a.k.a. Psycho of Bud Brain, is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we did do a little mention last week that um, you've been sharing a few pictures on Instagram, Ravi. Yeah, I have, and we've got 68 followers, thanks. <laughs> so, follow Retro Hour UK, and we can build this up. You know, it's quite fun doing stuff on Instagram, because it's like, you can post little videos, and we're always playing with geeky things, so everyone can kind of see what we're doing in the week. When you don't hear us on the podcast, you can still get a little retro hit. And you've been uh, sharing images with Jim Bagley, I believe, on there as well. Yeah, Jim Bagley's quite active on there as well. Yeah, he's he's a good programmer, isn't he, Jim? See, Instagram, I do like it, but it's one of those things, I install it on my phone, I look at it every now and then, then I seem to forget about it all the time, so we, I yeah. need to get more on this. You get more on this, it's been me all the time, Dan, so we both need to contribute. Oh, we feel like old men, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Let's forget Snapchat for now, yeah. So uh, if you want to follow us on there, Retro Hour UK, uh, same on Twitter as well, we do tweet quite regularly during the week, and of course, give our Facebook page a like as well, we often have giveaways and stuff on there too. Yeah, and also, we've just had a member of the Retro Hour get married. And it's Joe Fox. It is. I'm still a little bit hoarse after the wedding over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> what, t- what time did we start? I think I got there about 11 in the morning. You got there in the evening. I think I was well gone by the time you got oh, there. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> after I think Joe was well gone as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we'd love to share the video of Joe's first dance, but he might kill us. Yeah, definitely. So uh, No one wants to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, congratulations, Joe. We did share a nice little picture of us uh, all suited and booted on Friday. So uh, I think he's waiting his honeymoon now in, uh, in Florida. Oh, wow. Sounds good. Getting a bit of sunshine. <laughs> Now, uh, we also want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's voted so far um, for the British Podcast Awards. Now, the nominations came out on Friday at the wedding. Not that I was kind of checking my phone during the ceremony or anything. <laughs> but unfortunately, we didn't get a nomination, unfortunately. No, no, they had uh, quite a lot of really established people, like Absolute Radio, Edith Bowman, and 
all these, I'd say, traditional media. So yeah. uh, I was kind of a bit disappointed because I thought, well, we both thought that they might go for something a bit newer. Yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> I, thought, I thought it might go a bit more alternative, but I guess it is the first one they're trying to do. So yeah. they want to get a lot of the big names involved. And, you know, even like getting on the same page as someone like, you know, Radio 4 and BBC World Service. Oh, it's would be amazing. amazing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you guys can still help us out if you want to get a bit of, you know, alternative media, like recognised at this show. Um, the Listener's Choice Award is still open. So if you want to vote for us, literally, if everybody who listened to this show voted for us, we would win that. No, yeah, no questions true, asked. True, With the amount of listeners we have, so there's no excuse. <laughs> so listen, it'll take you five seconds. All you've got to do is go to the retrohour.co.uk forward slash vote. Type our name in. The Retro Hour podcast, and that's it. Yeah, just hit enter, bam, you voted. Now, we also want to say a massive thank you for everybody who supports this show, whether that be voting for us in the British Podcast Awards or the people who make the Retro Hour Hall of Fame every week. Now, these people that make a little donation through our website and help us towards the running of this show, and you can do that by clicking on the PayPal link. You'll find that on the front page of our website. And this week, we want to say a massive thank you to Douglas Barry... Brendan Griffin. Hawk Von Bremen. Luigi Fumero. And apologies if we mince any of your names. You know, we do try our best. Yep. <laughs> we even typed some of them into... Uh, well, actually, the other week, I had someone message me going, you called me Michele. My name's Michael. Because <laughs> of the spelling, we actually put it. You know, we tried to make an effort. Yeah. We put it into YouTube, you know. The pronunciation guide completely minced it, didn't it? So, like... uh, yeah, we do apologise. Our heart's in the right place. Totally, totally. And, you know... We love you anyway. Absolutely. So uh, if you would like to make a little donation into the running of the show, all you've got to do is click on that PayPal link that you'll find at theretrohour.co.uk. And also, we've got to give a huge congratulations to dear friend of the show, Mr. David Pleasance, the former managing director of Commodore UK, who we did mention is writing a book all about his time at Commodore. Yeah, and he's just hit a thousand backers. It's absolutely insane. And... He's announced all these extra stretch goals, which I think are really good. You know, you've got RJ Michael, who, this guy did the Atari Lynx. You know, this guy was massive in Commodore, and mm-hmm. he was basically one of the original guys. He's probably going to be able to tell us some secrets from the American side and why it balls up so badly. Absolutely. Well, I mean, even like RJ, I remember he worked with Jay Minor, you know, on the very early designs of the Amiga. And then obviously I know they had a big fallout with Commodore, and they had plans for like... You know, obviously the AGA chipset came out, didn't it? Yeah. But I know that they had plans for something better. I think it was called the Ranger chipset, like about 1987, 88. So maybe we can find out some, you know, details of that, what what could have been. Yeah, but he's also got a really fantastic announcement, which is, you know, the Commodore story, which is this new film that's being created, going to be fantastic, all about the Commodore users, is going to be free for everybody. Yeah, everyone that's about the project. We're all going to get a free copy. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely nuts. A now, thousand free copies. <laughs> Steve, who did this, he's just such a big fan of Commodore. I mean, you know, he's doing this. It's a real labour of love. We talked about this documentary um, on the show about a month ago, didn't we now? Mm. And, you know, he basically said to David, he admires what David did so much. He, he, he loves this book. He wants to show support. So everyone that's backed it is now going to get a free copy of that documentary. Yeah, it's insane. So it started off as a book by David. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's a book by David, RJ... Dave Haney, loads of other people, and a film. That's pretty amazing. And uh, we're filming a Blu-ray with him. You know, and a Blu-ray, one of the girls. yeah. I'm doing an audio book version of it now as well. Oh, my God. So, uh, <laughs> a busy few months, but, you know, yeah. if you have back this, um, I think, you know, when the show comes out, it just finished this weekend. Mm. But if you're really quick, I mean, you get in there before, like, Saturday night, Sunday, um, there is still time, so we'll stick a link in our show notes as well. Now, before we get to uh, Kim Frederickson and talk about the demo scene, some really cool stories that have been making the headlines this week, including... Uh, this list that you found on trustedreviews.com, all about 
hacking and making kind of your own spin on retro gaming consoles. Yeah, I thought this was quite good because it's totally unique to today. You know, you couldn't have done this stuff like five years ago. Now, the first one on the list, um, and, you know, being a fan of the Wii U, we've talked about this before, it does kind of break my heart a little bit that someone has essentially got uh, the Wii U gamepad, scooped out the insides and uh, shoved a Raspberry Pi in there um, <laughs> that runs loads of emulators on, but I've got to say, it does look cool. Yeah, it looks really nice. And, you know, you've got all the controls there. Everything's yeah. there, the screen, you know, all the elements you need. It actually, I mean, you know, I know the Nintendo Switch is kind of designed as a, a full-on handheld, but this could have been one if it went like this, couldn't it? <laughs> totally. Um, and the thing about it is, I mean, you know, we went to play last year, didn't we, in Manchester. Do you remember that box that was there just full of broken Wii U and gamepads? Oh, yeah, and, like, we should have bought them, Dan. We should have repaired them. We would have been millionaires by now. They were, like, <laughs> what, four quid or something, weren't they? I think they were about seven pounds yeah. a Wii U, and mm. this was just after they'd come out, so I don't know what had happened. It looked like someone had gone with a sledgehammer at them. Yeah, like HDMI <laughs> pins are all snapped in half and that, yeah. and the, it was like someone had beaten them badly. Probably some, like, spoiled rich kid. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm loving some of the mods here because, you know, they're kind of... There's, there's some fun stuff as well. So they've got the um, uh, GameCube yeah. as Wally. <laughs> Wally, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they've just kind of skinned it, and it just looks really good. When I looked at that, I mean, if you didn't see, you know, the CD, like, tray mechanism on the top... I said, it's actually a GameCube, but yeah, you look at it, it is. They've, yeah, done, like, yeah. they've modded that to it within an inch of its life, haven't they? And they've got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles party van. Made a NES. And they've put a NES inside <laughs> it, inside the van, and you can play Mutant Turtles on that. Well, this is one of those top-loader ones by the looks of it they put in there. Inside, like, a, it looks like a toy, doesn't it, of the, the party wagon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone's made their own N64 handheld that, you know, oh, that would have been a dream back in the day, yeah, wouldn't definitely. it? Definitely. And the um, Tron edition, which he's basically just gone mad with LEDs. And <laughs> lots of neon and stuff. Yeah. Do you remember Tron Guy, who used to be all over the internet in like the late 2000s? Yeah, Tron Guy was a really early one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was probably about 2007. He was that one of the early kind of YouTube meme kind of things, wasn't he? And he made his own suit or something. And it, yeah. He used to go to shows and all that, didn't he? He was like, you know, <laughs> a middle aged guy, slightly tubby. Yeah, <laughs> he used yeah. to wear skin tight lycra Tron costume. We should get him on, man. <laughs> Tron Guy. I could just imagine him playing this. That's yeah. <laughs> so there are some really cool ones here as well. Well, I mean, the but... Nintendo TV. Oh, my God, yeah. At the very bottom, this is a Dora the Explorer TV that they've ripped the guts out of, and they've put a pie in there, and it's got, you know, retro pie in it. I'm sure you've got one of those Dora Explorer TVs, Robbie. <laughs> yeah, from my somewhere. Dora days. <laughs> so if you want to check out this list, there is some really, really good stuff in here, including uh, an Xbox One laptop, and a Ben Heck made one of those, and there's oh, a board yeah. in here. Looks very slick, so we'll shove those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, if you're on Facebook, uh, just got to do a little shout here as well for the Commodore Amiga Facebook group because that Neil, who runs Indie Retro News, which is an amazing retro website, he's also you know the manager of that group too. He was saying the other day, no podcast ever mentioned this Facebook group, so we're always on there, aren't we? Yeah, we're always on there. Like even this week, I um, sent off to Marcel, who's yeah. a, a kind of guy in the Netherlands. He's got a man cave which is just full of computer stuff, and he had this nice Commodore bag. So I was like, oh, I'll have that. So I sent it off to him. He sent it to me. And just filled it with absolute goodies. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, is it my birthday? And he says, you know, empty bags are boring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you get like some like Miss Pac-Man cartridge or something for the C64. Yeah, yeah, C64. Yeah. And there was all, all kinds of stuff. Old magazines, you know, nice little bits of jewellery and stuff. Oh, I prop, like, props, didn't get a Sid chip or something on a key ring. Or something. Yeah, 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 it was like a little Sid. <laughs> so yeah, props Marcel, that's nice work. Uh, but the reason we're mentioning um, Indie Retro News as well is because, I mean, we've talked about kind of classic games yeah. from our childhood that get updated. 
and get kind of remakes and stuff like that. And this is a game that maybe a lot of people won't know, but it's something I used to play when I was a kid. And uh, this was a game called Booty. I've, I've just got in the show notes, Dan's Booty. Yeah, I'll not retitle that before we put it out there. <laughs> yeah. no, no one's going to listen to this week's show otherwise. No one wants to see that. Uh, but this was, it was kind of like, um, I always remember it because it had really cool artwork. And uh, if you look at this article, Neil's actually put a screen grab of it, um, in the Sinclair Spectrum box. It was on the uh, Firebird software label. And this was um, British Telecom's software oh, label. BT Soft, was it? Yeah, it was one of their spin-offs. Yeah, it was one of their spin-offs in the 80s. And they used to put out, you know, they're kind of like Mastertronic, they put out like, you know, games that cost two quid. And when I got my Commodore Plus 4 for Christmas, this game actually came with it, you know, um, whoever we, the shop we got it from, bundled this game. And it was a little bit weird. It was kind of like... Um, multi-screen game where you're a little pirate and you walk along, you've got to collect the keys and unlock stuff. But I always remember the music. Now, I'm going to play a bit of it here. See if this brings back any memories for me. It's very regal. Yeah. <laughs> That's everyone turned off now. <laughs> yeah, the Commodore Plus 4 didn't have the nicest sound chip, I've got to say. But yeah, looking at this game, I mean... It was a game I used to play a lot of, and I'd completely forgotten about it until I saw that apparently it's been kind of updated, and it's got a freely playable Pico 8 D-Make. Now, Pico 8's really cool. Do you know about Pico 8, Dan? No, what is Pico 8? Pico 8 is this kind of gaming language okay. that's really simplified and easy to use. But um, you know that pocket chip thing that I had? Yeah. Which is like a little Linux games machine? That runs Pico 8. So there's a lot of stuff that's been coded in there. And some of the demo coders have even made kind of voxel landscapes and <laughs> planes going through. And it's a really low kind of resource language okay, so and easy to use. Yeah. Well, I was reading here, it says, you know, you can play in a web browser. So yeah, I imagine yeah. it was pretty um, low requirements. But... And it's good for people just starting programming. Like at the National Video Game Arcade, I've sat in a couple of Pico 8 workshops. Okay. You kind of just learn a bit about it. It's... And I see that people are updating classic games on it as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, this and... game, there wasn't a lot to it. You just pick the keys up and go through the doors. Only 20 screens, it turns out. I don't think I ever got that far when I was a kid. <laughs> but um, if you're doing a play, you know, I'll shove that in there. But I, I guess this is going to get ported to a lot of other stuff because a lot of stuff supports Pico 8. So, you know, you'll see this appear on little Android boxes and stuff all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's booty will be massive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, obviously, on this show, I mean, uh, we have got an Amiga guest on this week. Um, I do own an Atari ST. We often do get accused, you know, in the comments of, oh, you, t- you guys are too Amiga biased, which, uh, you know, we, we make no qualms. That we, it is probably one of our favourite systems, <laughs> yeah. if not our favourite, you know. I, say, I, I haven't got bloody Atari ST. <laughs> All right, don't say it looks a bad thing. <laughs> now, someone who's uh, trying to make, you know, a little bit of equilibrium in the world of retro. trying make, to Make amends. Do, do a little bit of balance, yeah. A guy called Stephen Leary now... Uh, Props to Steve, he's actually making uh, an accelerator for the Amiga 500, um, which he sent one in the post today. And he was testing it on an Atari, and he was getting a lot of stick for testing it on an Atari by Amiga people. And he was saying, you know, if I test it on Atari, I can see other things that are going on Mm -hmm. that aren't going on on the Amiga. So he was trying to stop all this hate. So what he's done, (laughs) he's actually got the Amiga and the Atari ST to sing in harmony together. So this video, he put it on YouTube, it is, I mean, let's have a listen to it a minute. It's the old uh, dueling banjos. It is, isn't it? it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking that what's up. It's a smart idea. So he's got 
an Atari ST and an Amiga next to each other, both running, like Noise Tracker or Pro Tracker. And he started them both at the same time. But yeah, he's, he's actually pressed done it. Space Bar at the same time, bam. <laughs> and he's actually worked this out so they play alternate bits of the track. It's a really smart idea for a video. Imagine yeah. if you could have, like, dueling banjos on the snares versus a Mega Drive. <laughs> we should do the whole show over this. <laughs> yeah. It would become like a hillbilly podcast. Yeehaw! So, yeah, I think, you know, that's really cool to, uh, you know, bring everyone together. So it's nice to see that finally. I was watching a video the other day of someone um, playing Lotus 2. Do you remember on that game, you could link it via, um, like, a serial network cable? Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know that apparently you can do that between an ST and an Amiga and play, like, you know, four-play games. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. So, yeah, someone was doing that the other day on YouTube. So I'll find that. I'll ship that in our show notes A, as well. a unity event we should hold, Dan, <laughs> where we have both systems Everyone together. holding hands. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to check out this week's show notes, head to theretrohour.com. Now, this week, um, I've been spending quite a lot of time in early OS ten. Oh, my God. All the aqua look. Yeah. Well, yeah, I actually reformatted... Uh, one of my Macs, and I thought, I wonder how early I can go with OS X. I actually tried to go back to, um, the original was Cheetah, OS 10.0. Um, the earliest I could get on my Power Mac was, I think it was uh, Puma 10.2 or 10.3 it was. Very early, and I forgot it actually came bundled with Internet Explorer. So is this on a CRT as well? Yeah, I've got it on my CRT. It's like, oh. like going back to 2001 again. <laughs> nice, nice. So I was just messing around with it, because I mean, you know, I, I use Macs daily anyway, um, in some ways, I mean, you know, it is surprising quite how little has changed in terms of, you know, the Mac's operating system, considering, I mean, the OS ten beta came out in 2000, so we're talking 17 years ago. Well, that was it, because Steve Jobs left Next, wasn't it? And he kind of took the technology with him. Well, um, Apple bought Next. Apple yeah. bought Next, yeah. So it all kind of became one, and they just dropped OS nine, And that was like the rebirth of Apple, wasn't it, with the new... Nice iMac systems and stuff. Yeah, the multicolored ones and stuff. I remember like that. when they arrived at school, I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I, I didn't know Macs were still going. You, you know? can see through and the case it, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see all the chips inside. But um, well, the reason I'm mentioning this is because uh, we've actually just checked out a picture here um, of an early internet exhibition in London, and they're using those iMacs, one of the uh, orange ones. Oh, yeah. And they're also, this exhibition's really good. It's all about the early internet, and it's. I think they've created a, a like local area network or they're kind of running the old servers on there because they say, you know, the first e-commerce site was Pizza Hut, which was in 1994. Do you know what I remember? <laughs> Do you remember the Sandra Bullock movie, The Net? Yeah, yeah. You know, she orders a pizza on there, doesn't she? And like, ah, it's pizza.com yeah, yeah, yeah. or something, yeah. And that was like, must have been around then, 94, 95. Well, well you can actually order it. Right. At this exhibition, you know, you can... <laughs> I don't know if it will turn up. <laughs> yeah, a pizza from 1994. Yeah, it's just like really rank and mouldy. <laughs> and uh, the original e-zine, I don't remember this, Word.com, apparently that was the first online kind mm. of magazine. And the first uh, internet comic as well. and uh, The first GIF, I wonder what yeah. that was. But also the coffee pot as well, which uh, we've mentioned, the Trojan coffee pot quite a few times. This was the first ever live stream, technically, wasn't it? Or the first webcam, wasn't it? It was the first webcam, yeah. And it was Cambridge University's coffee machine. <laughs> they just streamed <laughs> that, didn't they? So what they've done is, I mean, you know, they've hosted this. So if you go in there, there's you know the candy-coloured IMAX that came out in 1998. And you can browse the web as it was basically in the early to mid-90s. Yeah, so this is called 64 Bits Is Here. And it's at Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, and it's till April the 21st. What is quite interesting, though, is uh, there's a guy, uh, Jim Bolton, his name is, who's one of the directors behind this. And he says, nothing has been archived from the early days of the internet, so 
these early lessons of the web are in danger of being lost forever. I read that and I thought, what about archive.org? Well, textfiles.com, that even does the BBSs, which were pre-internet, so, yeah. Textfiles, that's an amazing website. They archive stuff like, you know, I found like CD-ROMs on there and like they've got data files. Oh, and yeah, VXs yeah. And... All of it's up there, actually, so I don't know... <laughs> Where he's been looking. But yeah, well, I'm glad he did this anyway, because it looks oh, pretty Oh yeah, cool. no, I think this is a very well, well-curated exhibition, and I think everybody would really enjoy it. And he said he's, he actually got all the old uh, Macs off, uh, you know, eBay and FreeCycle and places like that. Great. Have you ever used FreeCycle before? No, no, I've, I, I used to use it in the early days, but for like rubble for my garden and rubble. stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I had a look on there once, I mean, God, I was probably going back about 2007, eight. And I remember on there, actually, speaking of Macs, they had like a Power Mac G4 that a company up the road were like giving away. And I didn't have a car at that point. I thought, I'm never going to get back to my flat. And they're giving it away for free. They had a few of them actually about passed up on it. So well, in hindsight, uh, I was like, oh, I wish I got it. Now. When I went to university in London, I remember they upgraded the whole computer suite and they had all of those iMacs, you know, the nice new translucent iMacs. Or the, or the CRT ones. Were yeah, they? yeah. Okay. And they had them in a roll cage. Well, uh, and they just pushed it, rolled them all out and then smashed them with sledgehammers. <laughs> And we're just sitting there watching them like, no. <laughs> That's the thing, though. I mean, it's, you don't realise that things are going to become rare and valuable, do you, in time, no, I suppose? not at all. And also, lots of universities and places like that just had the policy, our data is on there. Yeah. So we've just got to wreck them so they can't be used. It's I think a lot of companies do It's such a wastage. Yeah, yeah, a lot of companies do that as well. I mean, I've seen you know, them destroying stuff like servers that are only maybe five years old and things like that. Yeah. They've still got loads of life in them, but they won't oh, give them to anyone else. All the computers that have gone. <laughs> well, it's like my CRT monitor broke last week, actually. Uh, one day I turned it on, had a bit of a loose connection. I actually found a local TV shop near me. Uh, rang the guy, he was an old bloke in there, and I said, you know, uh, I've got this old monitor that I really like. Don't want to get rid of it. Um, I'd asked on a few like on the few of the Facebook groups, and people like it's probably just a dry solder joint. I've never took apart a CRT monitor before, and I know they can pack a bit of voltage in there. You, so. You've got to discharge it, haven't you? In that, what was it? If you touch it in the wrong place, it can basically kill you straight away. Yeah, yeah, a lot of voltage in there. Yeah, yeah so do not hat. open CRTs, guys, unless you know one hundred percent what you're doing. There is actually videos of discharging them on YouTube where you know you've got to kind of. Put like a bulldog clip on the side oh, of the case. scary and, stuff. Yeah, screwdriver and it goes a poof like that. So Jesus. I, I thought I'll leave it to a professional. But I took it in. It's like a, a Mitsubishi one, like from about 2001. And it's got like a Trinitron, you know, display yeah, Sony. Yeah. Took it in. This guy's like, oh, I haven't seen one of them for a while. Beautiful tubes, beautiful display. Oh, nice. So, well, I've got a couple of Amiga <laughs> monitors that he needs to fix. And I know our mate Alkis... He's going to take a whole arcade unit down there, isn't he? He's, He's going to... got like a Sega Model 2 or something. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's going to be what the hell? <laughs> like, what have I done? I shouldn't have started repairing these CRTs. So, uh, but the thing is, I mean, you know, the reason I mentioned that things are getting rare, I was kind of looking for a replacement because I got that monitor, you know, probably about five years ago for a quid. A quid, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a really nice 1942 Amiga one for 50 quid, 40 yeah. quid. Yeah. But I was looking for the same kind of monitor on eBay. There's one seller and he's trying to sell them for 200 quid now. CRTs oh, are getting rare now, dude. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So uh, it's good that, you know, people are keeping them going and, uh, you know, if you have got stuff, don't trash it because it does become valuable. Yeah, well, don't try and fix it yourself. Try and find some old old TV <laughs> engineer. He's the person you need. That's the thing, those little independent shops, though, you know, have been there for years. Yeah, the guy got all, you know, dewy-eyed nostalgic over it, he did. Oh, totally. So charge me 45 quid, but, you know, <laughs> it's still cheaper than buying a new one. Definitely, I'm going next week. <laughs> him in business yeah so thank you for checking out episode number 65 of the retro hour podcast we'll be out again next friday your little treat before the weekend available from all of your favorite podcast clients stitcher soundcloud youtube 
iTunes and uh, of course leave reviews thumbs up the comments are always appreciated yeah on Instagram yeah and on Instagram Retro UK right then let's get all nerdy about the demo scene from back in the day this week's special guest Kim Fredrickson aka Psycho is our guest this week and we'll see you next week Black Brain Productions ciao You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's special guest. Now, um, this is one for the demo scene heads this week. Uh, welcome to the show, Kim Frederickson. Thank you so much. Now, uh, you used to be known as Psycho on the scene back in the day. People may know you under that name. Yeah, that's correct. That was uh, that was my very inventive uh, name for the demo scene. Well, it's pretty cool that we got you on as well, because I know the podcast. We're actually pretty big in Denmark, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we've got quite a lot of listeners, so, uh, you know... We're going to be exploring this side of the world. So, <laughs> Kim, let's go back all the way back to your start of, um, you know, how you first got into computers. It would be quite interesting. I mean, what was your kind of earliest memory of using a computer? Well, it's actually the the story is kind of almost like it was written for for a movie or something because it's almost too good to be true. But I started out getting a Commodore 64. I think I got it when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Very quickly after I, I started working with that, uh, just playing com- uh, games and stuff like that, I got interested in programming. And it didn't take very long. I think I got my my Amiga already when I was 15. So I very quickly converted from the 64 to the to the to the Amiga. And what what was fun about my start was that I actually made my very first game right after I got my Amiga and I made it because I got um, my I had a big brother at the time he died when I was 18 years old and he was handicapped um, and I made a game for him because there was no none of the games that that were available at the time he could play because he was so handicapped that he couldn't really do anything so I made a game for him um, where he could play the game just by pressing one button so uh, it was super simple, very crappy game, but it actually worked. And that was kind of like my whole start in programming because I actually found purpose very quickly in what I could do with this thing could actually help someone. So it's kind of your love for your brother that got you into coding then? Yeah, it was. And and, and actually that, you know, it, it from that point, someone at at his school heard about it and then there was this company that did software for handicapped people. They did like... You know, uh, software where they could you could they could write and stuff like more like uh, educational software and not entertainment. And they they got a word of this somehow. And then I actually started producing games for handicapped. And I you know actually with my partner in crime from uh, from the demo scene, um, we started together uh, making games for handicapped. And that's actually I started making pretty pretty good money from that right away. Well, because also the Amiga had lots of kind of devices that were really, you know, usable and accessible. So they had like, you know, trackables and stuff that were kind of different inputs. That The Amiga was very good with that. In that start, there was a lot of people messing around with, with different types of, of uh, hardware. And it wasn't that difficult to make something that actually worked for the, for the Amiga back then. So especially, for example, like making big-ass buttons for you know for a handicapped person to press they were messing around doing that kind of stuff so that made it easy to detect that and use that as a joystick in very simple joystick really 
Well, going back to the Commodore 64, I mean, what kind of stuff did you do on that machine when you first got it then? I actually try to remember not too long ago uh, how I how I learned to program because I was not good at it on the on the on the 64 at all. I never got past the super basic stuff, meaning I did actually basic and then I started messing with, you know, writing assembly code. But the only way to write it, at least from what I learned, was to write it in you know, data entry, so typing numbers by number, comma, number, comma, number. And I was, I never learned that. I, a friend of mine, he actually programmed big uh, demos and big applications just writing data lines. And I was super impressed about that. I still am. I never understood how he remembered that when you wrote a certain number, comma, a certain number, it actually turned out to code. Um, so, I never really amounted to anything on that. I never did anything worth anything on that. And then again, I don't know how that how I how I learned on the Amiga because all I had was the reference manual. And I think that's how most people was. And I was trying to think the other day because I still program and nowadays I just every time I got a problem I just google it. And back then how I, you know, there there was some magical something magical about the way that you couldn't find the answer that you know that that was that was amazing i thought well, you're right i mean you, you know on the commodore 64 it was very low level you know if you do machine code you were you know poking into like memory locations and stuff it was you know banging the metal yeah. really weren't you yeah exactly and it, and the same thing on the amiga really it was like the i i don't think i ever got into c programming on the amiga everything i did was assembler back then and you did like hardcore memory allocations and you just wrote directly into the to the different memory areas and stuff like that. So um which Amiga are we talking about? Are we talking about one thousand or kind of yeah, later models? Yeah, I I got the one thousand very quickly after it came out. I don't think it was six months old when when I got one. And I purchased one and I I got my my my, my dad to whip out his wallet and, and pay for it and <laughs> promising you know to work for the rest of my life as a slave just if i could get that thing and buy the extra 256 kilobytes of ram so it actually could you know could could do something and i got you know three or four extra discs and that was it really and then i just slowly started and started networking finding other people i was lucky because i actually worked in a computer store um close to where i lived which gave me access to other people that was interested in this so so instead of just being on my own i actually very quickly got access to other people that had the same passion as me and i think that's how i learned you know we we all knew a little bit and then we taught each other what we knew and it was Fortunately, not the, the same little thing we knew, so we got better and better and better. Well, um, working in the computer shop, you must have kind of had a, a unique look at the scene in Denmark at that time. And what was it like? Were there lots of Amiga mags? Or? It was very slow. I, I, I remember the very first thing I saw on, on the Amiga 1000 was it was set up in the, in the shop, and I just got my job there, and... I remember somebody coming by 
actually a, a guy who used to, I, I got to work with later, this guy came by and he put, put in a disc and it started playing music. It played, I think it was We Will Rock You by Queen. And it actually sounded like the actual music. And I was super blown away because I was used to hearing 8-bit music from the 64. And then all of a sudden this thing was playing. And to me, it sounded like it was like, perfect quality of course it wasn't but it sounded to me like that and and you know he i was just blown away that he put in this disc and then it started playing music i couldn't fathom it it just couldn't couldn't get it and from that moment on i was blown away and i was just sold and i had to get it and that's how the whole thing started so how did you become aware of this early kind of Uh, technology uh demo displays you know I think I became aware because I saw an ad in a magazine about, you know, because it became bigger, right? It was like the first parties weren't as organized. And and then I know that the one that we went to was probably the biggest ever, as far as I remember. It was huge. Which one was that then? It was, um, I forgot the name of it. It was in 1990. Was it, was it the Amiga Demo Amiga Conference? It was, in, it, it was in Denmark, and that was one of the reasons. It was like right next door to where we lived. That was one of the reasons why we decided to, to participate in that. But I, I, it's, it's embarrassing. I can't remember the name of the conference, but it was big. I remember the first price was $1,000, which was like a fortune to us. I remember when I won that amount of money, I got it in cash and I had to carry it home. And I was home alone that day um, because my parents had gone to their summer house. I was home alone and I came home with all that money. And then I suddenly realized that my address was at the end of the demo. And then I I was so afraid that someone was going to come and rob me from that money that I didn't sleep all night. (laughs) There with a baseball bat next to your bed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was stupid. But uh, for me, that was just like more money that I had ever had before. Well, you made a really interesting point about how, you know, suddenly being a geek, you know, became cool because there was definitely something about the scene, you know, the way it did kind of explode around that time. And suddenly it was cool to be kind of elite, wasn't it? And, you know, you get all yeah. that, the, the advert and the bulletin board scene and all that, and, you, the, you know, the demo coders, you always want to outdo the other groups with graphics and music. I mean, did you really feel like it was like a, a real culture? It was, I was totally into it. And was that was my life because... You've got to remember that the first demo that we did, I learned everything during that the programming of that that demo. It probably took us at least a year to complete it. So I probably started like late. We probably started like late 1988 or like early 1989 making this demo. And I learned everything along the way. So it was my life. Every time I didn't go to school, I was working on this stuff with my friend and back then and i'm sure you remember that the people that were not into this they couldn't understand it it's not like nowadays that where everyone knows that they need a computer and are involved in computers and find it cool that you know about computers back then you were a weirdo if you actually knew stuff about or were into computers but i realized that i didn't care and that's what I meant about cool. For me, it was cool. I didn't care about what other people thought because it became such a big part of my life. And it, I learned that, and still to this day, I learned that programming 
is the greatest in in my world anyways it's the greatest thing you can do because you got a day full of small victories when you program and it's not like any other job it's not like you know where you if you're you know i make music as well and you making music is super frustrating compared to programming because when you program you have 20 successes in a day because you make three lines of code and something happens on the screen and it's magic and i still feel that way and so for me that was just like i found my my life passion uh, by doing that so so in but but you're right though it 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 became something that people looked up to very quickly when you when you knew this stuff because it didn't take long from 1989 until everyone had a computer at home well, I think, you know, especially then in the demo scene, it kind of encouraged it because, you know, every every lamer wanted to, like, progress to become elite, didn't they? It was like, you know, you'd all, it really encouraged you to do your best work, wouldn't it? I remember my 15 minutes of fame was when there's a lot of funny stories surrounding the Brain demo, but the biggest moment for me was when I was sitting at a friend's house and we were sitting drinking beers and listening to music and we had MTV running in the background without any sound on it and all of a sudden I see Ray Cokes. I, I'm sure you remember yeah. him. Ray Cokes was like the man of MTV. I see him murmuring something on the screen and then the next thing I see is my demo running on MTV. <laughs> and for, that's when I knew that, that this had was no longer just a niche you know, thing. It actually was becoming mainstream that everyone was interested in what was going on because it very quickly went from nothing to everything. Did they tell you they're going to play it on MTV then? Or? No, no, I had wow. no clue. I was just like, when I saw it, I was like, turn it, turn up the volume. <laughs> you know, like I was super excited. And Ray Cox, I remember him saying that it was better than any music video that he had ever seen. So it was like super exciting for me to see that. But you know, we got so much attention after that, but I didn't make a dime off of it. Not at least not directly. <laughs> and a lot of other people made money off of it, but not me. Well, you, I think you're completely right because a lot of the stuff you said there is kind of shared experience. So I remember, you know, I thought Amigas and coding and stuff was the coolest thing ever, and I was totally cool. Everybody else was, you know, <laughs> not interested yeah. and they thought it was nerdy. But there was one point where people would be like, you did this on the computer. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, that was the kind of turning point when the general public started to get involved. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and that that switch was very sudden. It wasn't like something that people had to, like, get used to. It was like overnight, basically. I think the probably the PlayStation had something to do with the first PlayStation had something to do with it and, you know, certain games and, and that kind of stuff that, that the PC actually started becoming a gaming machine and that kind of stuff. I think that changed a lot. Um, but, but I can't pinpoint the exact time when it went from, from nerdy to cool in, in, you know, other people's minds. But for me, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was super cool. I didn't care what anyone else thought. So I'd say your first thing was the Mega Demo then, Bud Brain. Yeah, the first release we did was the, the Mega Demo, yes. And where did this kind of concept of crazy wild demos come from? Because before, it was all about technical achievement and how many 
balls you could fit on the screen, but they wouldn't have, you know, comedy or, or wild music or, you know. But that's why we did it. I, I've, you know, my friend and I, we laughed a lot together before we did this. And, and we were we were starting to get interested and we I started, you know, trading stuff with people and, you know, I started getting demos and all that. And we were so bored with the demos and we we were we wanted to see if we could win by doing something completely different. Our purpose from the get go when we started doing this demo was to release it at a party and to see if we could win by using humor. That was that it was completely planned. So because we thought that people everyone likes laughing and and the one thing that we understood at, at that early time that, that nobody else understood for some reason was that the main thing that you need, no matter what kind of communication you do, is a good story. Not that our story was fantastic, but it was better than every, everything, anything else on, on, on the demo scene at that time. And I think that's why we not just won it, we won it with a landslide. We won it like a massive victory. And... And as you all know, I was not the best programmer in the world, but we didn't need to be. We didn't have to be the best programmers in the world or the best graphic artists in the world or the best musicians in the world, because as long as we had a good story, that's what people want. They want to be entertained. They don't care about how many stupid balls we can put on the screen. Well, if people are interested and hadn't seen that, I mean, obviously you can watch it on YouTube now, so I'll put a link in our show notes. You know, it's dead easy to look at it these days. Um, but for, you know, people that may not have experienced those kind of like 90s uh, demo scene parties, kind of describe a little bit what it was like then going to a demo party. The, the first party we went to, we didn't go. We just came on the day of the demo, uh, of the demo competition. So we actually didn't stay at the party. It was only until after that we started th thinking, okay, you know, we're kind of like... We had we kind of have to embrace it now since we, because it was just like one big slumber party with people that were nice to each other. That that's really my how I remembered all this stuff. That's that's the cool thing about geeks. Usually we're nice to each other because you know everyone's been tormented by 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 someone in their in their early age, so they don't want to torment anyone else. So it was just a super nice feeling that was at these parties, like everyone was just walking around and, and someone was selling, you know, dangerous fireworks and someone was selling, you know, uh, uh, copy movies and, and people were trading all over the place and people were programming and there was like chips everywhere and candy and some people smoked weed and, and, you know, it's not like it was a problem or anything, but just the, there was room for everything. And I, I found that super fun. Because I look at, you know, there are videos of, like, you know, the old, uh, like, the party, like, 92 and 93 on YouTube. And, like, you know, a lot of teenagers around maybe, like, you know, drinking a bit underage with x copy yeah. running on all the screens. And, like, you know, it looks, like, pretty magical. Looks heaven. Yeah. It was, it was super fun. And there was always, always like, there was a room with a, a big screen, you know, almost like a movie theater where, where they would run, like, you know, I remember... A movie that will always run was uh, what's his name? What's his name? The uh, what's it called? Bad Taste, I think. Like one of the yeah. early um, like horror spoof movies. That was a, that was one of the movies that would always run there, and 
everyone would sit there and laugh their ass off because of this and that. And, you know, it, it was just it was really magical, but and disgusting at the same time, but <laughs> but disgusting in a fun way. You know, it kind of tied in with like you know raves were big around that time. I guess it was kind of like you know a, a geeky kind of rave, really, wasn't it for the weekend? Yeah, and and it's a funny thing you say that because I went to raves as well. So <laughs> so I had these two personalities because I loved electronic music at that time. So I went to like underground raves in Copenhagen, that kind of stuff too. And you're right. There was very much the same acceptance of people there that you wouldn't find in the mainstream. So um, you kind of mentioned the raves and the music. One great thing about the mega demos was, you know, the music actually went with the animations and especially stuff like the rapping chickens. (laughs) That was fantastic. Like The, The way we would make that was that because... There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that I had to invent as a programmer because we were sitting together, me and, and my buddy Renee, we would be sitting together and we would and we would find a, find ways to do something that we wanted to do. So we came up with the idea of the of the wrapping chickens and, and I couldn't draw to save my life. So he would draw up, you know, something and do some animations and then he would make he would make the music. He he did all the tracking. But then what I would do is I would program something in the tracker code so we could put in extra what's it called like the hex codes in in the tracking information that were not assigned to anything in that particular tracking software. And I would read that out as a trigger for an animation. So that that was really like we had that we were sitting there and timing everything. And the, and the chicken thing was not really a big deal it it didn't take very long to make what did take a long time to make was the um the chaos remember that there was like this long 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 animated almost like a music video with there where there was like this very um fast-paced uh early uh house type techno music it's like a strobe wasn't it a kind of strobing yeah, there was like stroping and there was like this little animations. There was a baby coming up and there was like all these little things. And we were sitting there tracking that, like putting in the triggers for the timing for, for when stuff, hap- stu- stuff happened took forever. It took so long because we would have to do it like one at a time and make sure it ran and compile. And, you know, it was just like it was a nightmare doing that one because it was so long. It's like way too long. I remember it's it's like probably five minutes or something like that and it should have been could easily have been half that you know well did, did that all fit on one disc as well no it was two discs two discs how did you fit it up i mean that was like you know 15 minute demo on like two discs yeah yeah um i don't really remember because again i've been discussing this with, and i'm sure you have too like today a printer driver takes a thousand times the space that we had available on the Amiga. About 30 megabytes and, or something at least, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it, it's insane, like, how much space there is, like, on... I've seen the printer driver be a 500 megabytes. Yeah. And we had 512 kilobytes, including the system, right? But I don't really remember. I, I Everything, that was the beauty of it, right? Like, we had to, like, optimize every little detail, every little thing, everything you could save... And I remember just the amount of time I could spend on optimizing the inner loop of some routine to make it able to do what I wanted it to. Oh. Um, and, and again, like in space saving, taking advantage of every little area 
of the of the system memory that wasn't in use, utilizing that as well. It was, in, it was incredible what you could fit in there. Well, uh, the kind of storylines were completely crazy and uh, a bit messed up. Um, on the first one, it was uh, a robber being shot in the head. And the second, it was a uh, kids TV character, Hugo, hanging Madonna to Twin mm-hmm. Peaks music. How did you guys come up with this then? Well, the, the funny story about the second mega demo is that with, uh, with Hugo was that we really didn't like Hugo. We were fed up with him. You know, he had been running on Danish. It was a Danish character, and he we, he had been running for a while. We were annoyed with him, but at the same time, we were kind of jealous that we didn't weren't a part of it. So my friend decided that when we did this, we decided to kind of like take the piss, but at the same time, we we utilized it as a way to kind of show off. So instead of of stealing the the graphics he decided to decided to draw him himself to show that he could draw hugo as well so actually that turned out to be a very good idea because it opened up the, so that he got a job and then i got a job at that company so both of us got to work with the company doing hugo because we hung the guy in our demo so that's kind of a funny little anecdote there <laughs> that's that's kind of crazy because also the subject was pretty um, <laughs> pretty hardcore so they were like yeah, oh yeah so so the reason why we decided to kill madonna be- it was because we were in a little bit of a uh you know a geek or with uh, cryonics which was another uh demo group they were that were technically a lot better than us, and they were annoyed with the fact that we beat them because they came in second at the first demo party after our demo, and they used to they they were used to winning, so they decided to take the piss on us, um, and then they, this was our revenge back to them. So there was like a, a actually, and the reason why it was Madonna is because the the one of the main guys from Cryonics Kr- was the. I think he was like the head of the Danish Madonna fan, fan club. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so that's why. And his name on, in the demo scene was Madonna Freak. So that's why we decided to kill her. <laughs> well, was there quite, <laughs> quite a lot of rivalry between groups then? Yeah, there was. And especially, there were a lot of people that hated us because they thought we got away with it too easy. Because we didn't show that we could do six more sprites than the other guy. We decided to to go for the more creative approach, and and I'm sure a lot of the guys today will realize that it was a smart move and not be, but but back then it was just that you know we felt that that the demo was to show the, how good the programmer was. It had nothing to do with the graphic guy. It had nothing to do with the music. It had really nothing to do with scripting or concept or creativity. It was really a showcase for the programmer. And what we did was we took down the programmer to the level of the graphic guy and the music and lifted everything to the same level. So we had a lot of people hating on us. But we had even more people that loved us, so that was good. Do you remember like any any examples of like a backlash that you had? Like It wasn't like a demo uh, made by there, Flash there, that mocked you? There was... I think there was someone who did a butt brain mega demo three, which was not done by us, which was just a really terrible demo. It was fun because it was so badly made. They made it super bad on purpose. And, um, 
and that was pretty that was pretty cool there was a lot of references i don't remember specifically any but there was a lot of a lot of you know subtle and not so subtle references and different demos but i remember especially that number three mega demo they put work into it and i appreciated that well it, it kind of changed the way that i looked at demos as well because before i wasn't really kind of raving to the music you know but no. when you had bud brain 2 with the africa section and stuff it was mm-hmm. wicked it was really really got me excited so i'd play that repeatedly instead of playing the balls that i played previously that's cool well that's not that's nice to hear well obviously you know a big part of the scene back then was um you know obviously wares and uh trading and that kind of thing i mean um did, did a lot of that go on then i remember when right after we won the first demo uh competition I had to go to the my the day after. Remember, I told you I was home alone, and then the day after that, I had to go to my parents' summer house for three weeks for summer. And when we came back, we couldn't open the door because there was so much mail inside. We had got I had gotten mail because you I had written my address at the end of the demo. I had gotten mail from all over the world. There was literally mail from everywhere in the world. And I've never seen anything like it. Every day I got 30, 40 new letters with discs in them and people wanted to trade. And that backlash because I couldn't, I simply couldn't afford writing these people back. There were so many people that wrote me and put in a disc and wanted me to send something back to them and I just couldn't afford it. So as much as I wanted to, it would have cost me a fortune writing all these people back. So people started getting pissed off and writing again, like, why the hell didn't you write me back? So that kind of killed my interest in trading, you know, with games and demos and all that kind of stuff. And I would get the same stuff over and over again and people sending me stuff they wanted me to look at and wanted me to program games and look at my graphics and it would be different if I made a fortune from all that we done, all the the fame that we got from it. We didn't make a dime, which means I couldn't afford to respond to the to the fame that we got. Because I know around that time, I mean, everyone I knew who was into like you know Amigas and Atari STs, you know, we we kind of like lived on like copy programs. I mean, were you not really interested in games then? Was it more the demo scene that you're into? I got really interested. What what we started doing after the second demo, and the second demo, I have to admit, was not as well thought through as the first one. I was never as proud of the second one as the first one. The the second one was really just us like thinking we have to do a second one. And we, we did it in three months compared to a year on the first one. And after that, we decided there were so many people at that time starting to make games. We decided we wanted to do a game too. But we decided from the get-go, if we do this, we have to finish. We have to finish the game that we that we want to that we want to build because nine out of ten of the people that I heard that started building games they never finished it. So we said, no matter what, we have to finish this game that we started doing. And then we committed all our time for two years. I I basically every night after school, I went to my friend's house and we would we would work on this game, and we uh, we didn't. We were stupid because we decided to make an Olympics game. So we we made a game with, instead of it being one game, it was eight games, right? It had like eight different 
sports <laughs> that you can compete in. And we wanted to do like one of the old wiggler games, like from the 64 where you would wiggle your joystick real fast to yeah, run yeah, and yeah. that kind of stuff. And so we did like a real Olympics game and we finished it and it was good. We were, I still to this day think we made a good game. The only problem was when we were done until the time that it was ready to release um, Commodore went bankrupt. Um, so it was, we, we just released it for this. It was only released on the CD 32. It was never released for the Amiga alone. It was just released for the CD 32. And, and it was just never, it sold a little bit. We made a little bit of money from it, but we got taken as well by the, by the, the company that, that, um, that released it. It was released to, through two different, uh, publishers and, we just—I learned so much from it, but we got taken for for a ride. But that everything, all my energy went into that after that. And, but we did finish, and I was—I'm still to this day proud of the end result. What was that game called? It was called Summer Olympic Olympics with an X. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. You do? I think I've got it on CD32. Rabbi collects CD32 games. Okay. When was it released? I don't remember. Um, yeah, 1994 it was released. Yeah, just, just at the right time. Yeah, if, yeah, you, if it had yeah. come out a year earlier, you'd probably would have had a lot more success. Yeah, So, but but I was still, I'm still really, really happy that we did it because I learned so much from it. I learned a lot about the business, learned a lot about doing business, and learned a lot about what to look for when you get, you know, effed. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, that very Amiga 1000 is uh, for sale on eBay that Bud Brain Productions used to use. Well, on Facebook even. Yeah, no, that's that's me trying to sell. I have it here at home, um, but I I still haven't decided if I wanted to sell it. I was trying to figure out what you know how much to to charge for it, but it's still not worth it. It's still like, but the 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 only reason why I want to sell it is because I don't use it. And I think it's it's a, it's a, it's sad that it doesn't get used. Um, I would prefer that somebody that you know wanted to take care of it and actually use it. And I simply don't have the time. I spent so much time today working and making music that I don't have time to geek around with my Amiga anymore. Well, we'll uh, put a link to that in our show notes for any listeners that are interested in an Amiga yeah. 1000, the legendary one. If it hasn't gone by now. <laughs> but actually, yeah. I mean, I've sold my you know old computers a few times. I was in a buying them back, though. I kind of miss them after they've gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually haven't used it, and I don't really miss it because I spent so much time um, programming. I program on a daily basis um, today, and I have so many other interests, and I got two children as well, and they take up all my time. So I just don't have the time to use it. So, But I still might just keep it just because it's probably going to get worth a lot more over the years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you ever um, poke your eye into the Amiga demo scene nowadays and kind of see what's going on? I have a little... I've never, like, physically gone, but I still, you know, I like to reminisce about old times. So I'm even more, to be honest, I'm even more impressed with the Commodore. Even though I wasn't into that scene ever, I'm more impressed with the Commodore 64. What they can squeeze out of that box is amazing these days. I'm super impressed. I just don't can't get it, you know. It's, it's incredible. 
Well, they often stream like you know a lot of those kind of demo parties that they do on like Twitch and like um, you stream. And I, I just sit watching them at home. They're like, it's, it's like you said, it's amazing the things they come up with. It's it's but that just shows that those machines were special, right? Because the the fact that it was so new that the people who made them didn't know what they could do. I always found that super appealing that they were like hidden gems in them. And you don't find that nowadays when everyone's building on frameworks and everyone's utilizing the same stuff and nobody's bending the boundaries anymore. And that's what I miss. I, I miss that people are lazy and sloppy in their memory usage. And, you know, I, I, I want to I see people. And that's kind of like why I like apps and I like building for web and I like building stuff that works in a tight space because it kind of like brings back some of my old skill set. One of the things I work with today, for example, is optimizing speed of websites. And I think that is partly because I used to be optimizing stuff because I had to. Now I optimize stuff because I, I, I like to um, and because it, it nobody else wants to do it. And, and the, the benefit from it is still seen. If you want to spend the time squeezing something that nobody else wants to squeeze, you can see that it works better. But there is still like in you know, the demo parties that happened. I think there's about like five last year, and I remember I was watching the um, X2016 um, party in the Netherlands. It was on the back end of last year, and they were streaming all the demos and stuff as well. And it's like you said then. I mean, you know, I, I was looking at that stuff, and I thought if people had done productions of this quality, like you know, twenty, thirty years ago, like if you would seen it, it'd have blown your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and that that's what that I, I like to see that people still it it just shows how you know I know this sounds kind of cliche but it shows how magical people are that people learning from other people it just gets better and better and better because there's no doubt that if the the guy who's doing something super incredible today he can only do that because some someone did something almost as incredible last year and then someone did something almost as incredible the year before that and so on and so forth you wouldn't be able to do the same thing with the same person going back 20 years if he didn't have the the stuff that he learned from other people do you know what i mean yeah it's it's kind of like the playstation you know the first games were really bad on there and then you get to final fantasy 7 <laughs> and then by yeah, the end yeah, of the release yeah exactly you know. totally totally the same thing yeah and it's the same. It's the same hardware. It's the same machine. It's just the people that's gotten better at utilizing it. And I find that really, really um, um, appealing and and interesting about this whole thing. I find it uh, quite interesting as well that even with the demo scene at the moment, the Amiga still holds up. And every time I watch one of these streams online. Whenever the Amiga compo comes on, everyone goes mental. <laughs> like, yeah, screaming yeah. in the audience and stuff. The passion's still there, you know. But that's because the original real demo scene was the Amiga demo scene, right? There was something on the 64, but not to the same extent. There's never been anything as big as there was for the Amiga. When it got to PCs and, like, you know, everyone had graphics cards, it wasn't quite as sexy, was it? No, but it might have gotten bigger and, and, and grander and all that kind of stuff. But the original real growth of the demo scene happened on the Amiga. There's no doubt about it. Definitely. Well, 
It's been wonderful talking to you anyway. Well, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun talking about this stuff. I can talk about this stuff for hours, so, <laughs> so I had fun. Is it, is thanks there, for the opportunity. Is there any chance we'll ever see a Blood Brain Mega Demo HD? It's funny because we've actually talked about it, but I won't give out any promises. Oh, okay. That could be interesting. Well, we'll uh, yeah. d- do let us know if, uh, if that changes. I promise you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Excellent, Kim. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Okay, you're welcome. Have a great one. 